listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Each Friday, we bring you the latest news and analysis from the world of labour. First, the news. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to episode 47 of Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast. And in this week's news, uh, the big two words on everybody's lips this week, if you're watching the Supreme Court, um, were Hobby Lobby. Um, Hobby Lobby, as you might have heard, is one of the two corporations that is going before the court to argue that the Affordable Care Act uh, impinges on their religious liberty because it would um, compel them, in their view, to uh, support what they call um, contraception that facilitates abortion, even though that's not true. Um, and uh, it would, because the Affordable Care Act has a mandate on employers, they're saying that it is not fair for them to have to fund these types of contraception through their payments for their employees' insurance. Essentially, what they're saying is, we're religious, we don't like contraception, therefore we reject any effort by the government to force us to pay for the health care of our employees because, God forbid, they would use some of this health care to um, you know, engage in family planning. It's problematic on a number of levels. Um, it's being it raises all sorts of constitutional issues about religious liberty, but it's also an employee's rights issue, um, and that's one thing that the media coverage is really sort of um, not picked up on. And in fact, um, we didn't really get to the issue of employees' rights versus corporate rights or versus real religious liberty of the boss until sort of you know towards the end of the oral arguments this week when Justice Kennedy actually raised the question straight up front. He said, "How can the employer?" basically, quote, put the employee in a disadvantageous position, and he wonders the employee may not agree with these religious beliefs of the employer. Does the religious beliefs just trump? Um, Essentially, what they're asking is, if the state has a compelling interest in helping the citizen um, obtain health care, which includes family planning, and the employee has a mandate to pay for it, um, can they leverage their religious liberty against the employees' rights to have free health care and their equality before the law. And um, there's a lot of different opinions on this. The court actually seemed to be somewhat validating Hobby Lobby's argument, um, and Conestoga Wood was the other uh, company implicated in this case. But it raises a lot of troubling issues because it turns on gender and it turns on essentially labor rights. I mean, since when does the employer get to determine our choices in health care? Well, since, you know, we made the employer responsible for providing health care in the first place. Although, of course, if, say, the country provided health care for people like they do in most other major industrialized nations, I'm sure the same people would be having freakouts over their tax dollars paying for, oh my God, birth control. Right. So it's... It's an argument that we should probably be having in any case, but certainly in this case... Um, I don't know if anybody listening to this podcast wants their boss's religious beliefs imposed on them. Um, I know I certainly don't. But in any case, we will, I'm sure, be reporting on this more in the future. Yeah. And two words you do not hear in the news coverage, single pair, which is a thing right. that would basically remove this entire problem. Because well, it would yeah, but like I said, then the same people would be freaking out about tax dollars paying for abortion, which is a thing they regularly do every time we have to re-up the Hyde Amendment. <laughs> As uh, David Atkins at at, uh, Digby's blog pointed out that abortion care and birth control are basically set aside in this weird little 
talks of like the only thing that people get to have a moral hissy fit about. I don't get to say that I don't want my tax dollars going for war or to subsidize Fresh Direct's new fancy facility in the Bronx, but apparently it's very, very important that right. people get to say that their tax dollars not fund somebody's birth control. As opposed to an erectile dysfunction drug, which is really Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I wonder if Hobby Lobby has some feelings about Viagra. Has yeah. anybody asked them that? No, because it's always used in, you know, to uh, to foster procreation, of course. Also, Hobby Lobby is a corporation, and they don't have religion because they're not human. In any case, other things happened this week. Actually, last week, um, in a major, major victory for the port truck drivers, who you have heard us talk about many times on this podcast, um, port truck drivers at Pacific 9 Transportation in California have won the right to be considered employees and thus will have the right to form a union. That ruling came down from Region 21 of the National Labor Relations Board um, that the truckers had been misclassified as independent contractors. And this, of course, comes after recent strikes by these non-union, um, non-employee truck drivers um, in an industry where union jobs used to be the standard until deregulation turned all of these workers into quote-unquote free agents. Um, free agents who are not actually free to work for anybody else, set their own schedules or anything else. They are simply free to pick up all of the costs of paying for their truck and putting gas in it and any other insurance and liability that they may pick up along the way. So this is exciting. It probably has ramifications for the entire industry, we're hoping. And most importantly, this is Again, a victory for workers who were organizing, despite the fact that the under the law as it existed, they did not appear to have the right to do the legal right to do so. So it is a hopeful step for um, quite a few workers around the country who just happen to occupy a very strategically important place in the supply chain. So and congratulations. And speaking of workers who are often misclassified. <laughs> um, in the world of unpaid internships, we've been hearing a lot of horror stories coming out of that because of some high-profile cases and some legal action that's been pretty interesting. It's been going on since um, about last year. Some unpaid interns in high-profile media industries have been suing um, their employers, or you know, I guess quasi-employers, because they were technically unpaid interns, so they weren't really uh, you know, maybe legally defined as legal employees, but um, that is the crux of the issue. Um, Newsweek had a piece uh, looking at um, an interesting wrinkle in this issue of unpaid interns' rights. Um, we've heard a lot about whether or not unpaid interns are being exploited as free or very cheap labor um, because they're paid basically nothing or maybe sub-minimum wages um, to do essentially the same work as waged workers. But now there's a debate developing around unpaid interns' workplace rights, namely their um, protection from sexual harassment in the workplace. It turns out that New York actually has, um, you know, fairly decent uh, law under the human rights law um, that protects people from sexual harassment in the workplace. But unfortunately, if you are not, if you do not meet the legal definition of employee, it does not apply to you. Um, this uh, this became a point of contention when Li Huan Wang uh, actually ended up. Um, 
going to court uh, to allege that the uh, supervisor of her internship at Phoenix Satellite Television um, sexually harassed her, and she tried to seek recourse over this, but she was not able to because the judge ruled that she was not actually an employee and, quote, as such, wasn't protected by New York City human rights law. So basically what we have here is a vicious cycle in which your exploitation as free or cheap labor is actually um, stripping you of the rights that ordinary employees uh, should be able to take for granted in their workplace. Therefore, it makes you even more vulnerable to your boss. Um, If you have any sense of where this is going, basically it's a downward spiral that would lead to the complete, um, you know, obliteration of any kind of semblance of workplace rights that interns have. There's now um, an amendment pending to New York's um, human rights law that would um, expand these uh, workplace protections against sexual harassment to interns, and they also want to make sure that even people who are misclassified uh, outside of the Labor Department's definition of intern... um, that means misclassified interns, basically, not even misclassified employees, right? That they would also be covered. Yeah. So um, there are many, many layers to this, but the bottom line is if you're unpaid labor, that doesn't mean you're a fair game for sexual harassment. There is also the news this week that the New York Times is going to start paying its interns minimum wage. Um, In intern news, we always love intern news. As former intern, well, I was an I was an unpaid intern once. Were you an unpaid intern once, Michelle? I believe so. I yeah. believe so. Okay. So as former unpaid interns, cities, so as former unpaid and underpaid interns, we we have solidarity with the intern the the intern class, the everywhere. intern proletariat. Yes. <laughs> Nobody's come up with a cute word for that, have they? Now for something completely different. Um, In Los Angeles, a new report commissioned by a coalition of unions and community groups found that the city of Los Angeles had paid at least $204 million in fees to Wall Street banks in 2013. That is on top of principal and interest payments to those same banks. Um, So basically, city of Los Angeles paying a whole bunch of money to the same people who, remember, crashed our economy a little while ago. The report notes that basic services in the city have been slashed, of course, while that money continues to roll into the pockets of our favorite people, the bankers. This kind of research is being done by unions, community groups elsewhere around the country right now to point out essentially that this is where the money is going. It is not going into the pockets of some overpaid public sector workers. In fact, those public sector workers are quite often facing layoffs, uh, furloughs, um, pension cuts, any sort of interesting thing you can find to take money out of the pockets of public workers. Um, and that same money is is going in essentially profits to Wall Street, largely because Wall Street banks are giving out loans to fund infrastructure projects. And then quite often there are some creative um, financial products being used in that process, interest rate swaps, complicated things like that, that if you really want me to explain, send us an email at belaboredatdissentmagazine.org and I will do my best to explain what an interest rate swap is. I will also link to a piece that I wrote that sort of explain, explains it. But in any case, I, I find work like this, research like this, um, pretty helpful in terms of showing where the money is going, where the, where the wealth is concentrating, and what it's doing to the cities and towns that we all live in. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. 
And this week, we bring you a conversation with activists who are trying to call attention to the often overlooked issue of scheduling as a labor problem. Basically, we tend to talk about, um, you know, wages and hours, but we sometimes don't really think about how those hours are laid off and spread across the course of a week, say, or a month. For many people who are scraping by on part-time work or cobbling together a number of part-time jobs in order to make them something resembling um, a full-time work week. Um, scheduling of hours can be a very arduous thing, especially when you have what some uh, some in retail refer to as an on-call schedule. Basically, you are there at your employer's whim. You can be called in you know, around the clock, and sometimes you might just get a one or two hour shift and then end up commuting one or two hours just to get to that shift. And so it's a very unstable system. And the Retail Action Project, together with some community groups, um, recently launched a campaign called the Just Hours Campaign, um, starting with New York City. They're mobilizing workers to bring attention to on-call schedules and other problems that retail workers, particularly part-time retail workers, face. Um, we're going to hear first from some activists with the uh, with the Retail Action Project, or RAP, and the Retail Wholesale Department Store Union, which is um, RAP's affiliated union. And uh, this is Sansara Espinal and Oniko O'Keefe, along with RAP's executive director, Sasha Hamad, talking about the tyranny of the on-call schedule. So just walk me through your a typical work day. And when you walk in in the morning, do you even know how long you're going to be working? Or is it that unpredictable? Not necessarily for me. Like, we're given, like, a schedule. The only thing is, like, um, the schedule is given, like, really late within, you know, it's really given, like, last minute, sort of. Like, I'll show up Friday, like, I won't, like, I'll show up for work Friday, and then I'll find out Friday when I have to show up to work two days later. So the whole week schedule is planned, but, you know, I'm not aware of it until two days prior. And I also have, like... I have a shift tomorrow, actually, at six in the morning till about 10 in the morning. So it's just four hours. You know, I, you know, thankfully, I don't live far from my job, but it's just the, the process of waking up super early in the morning only to, you know, leave just as early is, you know, it's kind of daunting. It's, it's insulting, really, because it's like, you know, your yeah. time isn't valued. How much does your overall um, amount of hours vary from week to week? Um, overall, like I get, I'm in within the same range of hours, but it's not, it's hardly full time. Um, it's probably like a quarter of that, maybe like 10 to 15 hours a week. Mm-hmm. And yeah. did you know that when you got hired? Did you have a um, sense? I knew that it was going to be part time, but I was under the impression because I was told actually that I was going to get, like, I wouldn't get anything less than 20 hours. And is it ever less than 20 hours? It's always less than 20 hours. <laughs> Initially, you know, as the store is opening, um, you know, we got, we were working longer shifts because, you know, we had to put together the store. And, like, everyone, like, had an idea that we weren't going to see that many hours, you know, going forward. So we would, you know, work, like, stay as long as we could and stuff like that, find something to do, act like we were doing something so that we can get those hours. Um, but we were told that we, were gonna, we weren't going to get anything less than 20 hours, but, you know, that wasn't the case. That isn't the case. 
So given that situation, it seems like that could be something that you can call your employer out on. Is there any way to enforce this? No, there's nothing really, no, there's nothing at all like in, like set in stone or like is, you know, implemented or like, you know, enforced rather in regards to like managers saying one thing in regards to your hours and then doing another thing. Uh-huh. Um, and that's, you know, what, you know, myself and like other members of the Retail Action Project are working on with the Just Hours campaign. You know, we're trying to, and you know, hold bosses accountable in regards to not only our schedules, like working around our schedules and, you know, in regards to childcare and what have you, but also like guaranteeing us a minimum amount of hours that we could work. Do you know of any models that that might work or have you talked to workers that work under a different system and see how they do it? This is Sasha. You know, union contracts provide minimum guaranteed hours in certain situations and that's referred to in the report as well. But if you're a worker that doesn't have a union, which is the majority of folks in retail, unfortunately there's nothing protecting you. There's no guarantee of hours at all. You know, we've had members who've literally gone four weeks, six weeks, just purely being on call, calling every day to see if they have work and never being called in. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's there's no protections when it comes to scheduling. When I started working for um, the company that I work for, it's a clothing store. It's made well. You know, I went in there because I worked with the company prior. I worked the J Crew before for four years. And then I went to just do a switch and they told me that, you know, the the majority of hours that I would get as a part-time would be nothing less than 25 hours since they are in the one of their flagship stores in Fifth Avenue. And, you know, I, I've been in the company for so long, I think that I'm a valued, you know, uh, employee, and I'm getting one on-call next week and one, one four-hour shift, you yeah. know, and it, and, it's, and it sucks because, you know, you have so many things to depend on, like, if, you know, right now I'm, like, living back at home with, like, my parents and, like, I'm helping them out with, like, you know, the light and the rent. And it's, like, you don't even have predictability if you're going to even be able to pay your own bills at the end of the month because they give you, like, one on-call shift that you have to call two hours before and then see if they need you or not. Put you on hold for, like, 30 minutes <laughs> and then, like, say, no, we don't need you. Enjoy the rest of your day. Like, I would much rather be working than enjoying the rest of my day doing nothing and not getting like paid for it. Yeah. Plus I'm sure they don't pay you for the time you spend on hold. (laughs) (laughs) How does it make you feel about the rest of your life? I mean, if you don't even know how much money is coming in that week, how does that affect your ability to say like plan for your future? If you want to save for like a better apartment or if you want to like save up for a car or think about switching careers or anything like that? Like, how, how does that affect your ability to um, do anything that's going past like, the next week? I mean, it affects it affects life tremendously because, you know, we're still, quote unquote, relatively young. You know, we're like, I'm 24 and people are like, oh, you have so much time ahead of you and to do this and that. But it's like I was living on my own last year, December. And I literally put the pride aside to go back to my parents' house and tell them, like, hey, can I just crash over here so I can, like, save up a little bit? The fact that I have to save up a little bit and I'm, like, 24 and I've been on my own for, like, two years and I have to, like, go back to my parents' house. It just, first of all, as as a person who's, like, you know, going to school and, like, you know, had to stop to go to school to actually pay bills, it's a little... Um, 
it makes you a little not feel like a failure. I'm not saying I'm a failure, but it's like I wish it would have been at another uh, bracket in life right now. And I've thought about it. I've thought about it, like maybe I should switch my careers because I do visual merchandising. But it's like if that's the only thing that you know how to do that's best, like, you know, if you have to go back down to like a sales associate, then that's fine. I'll do it. But it's like you won't excel where you don't feel comfortable. And I feel that a lot of retail retailers period just they just kind of use you as a you know as a business they don't see you they don't value you as an employee as a a valued employee that's dedicating their four hours (laughs) to um you know their business and i know that at the end of the day it's a business that they're running but they're also there's people in there that have you know bills to pay and issues to work with and they're they're you know taking two three hours out of their time to call in prior just to see if they can go in and make, you know, 40 bucks a day for, you know, four hours. Is this a deliberate strategy to keep as many people on part-time as possible, just kind of keep on milling through workers, avoiding a stable schedule that would allow people to work enough hours to qualify for overtime and all the benefits that come with that? I think that, yeah, that's the issue. They actually want to give more little, I guess, four hour little jobs, you know, to more people rather than give um, a stable like nine, nine to five Monday to Friday job. Because, you know, I'm going to disclose this, but like when you go into a retail job, they give you the paper where you sign in, they tell you how much you're going to get paid. And then they give you um, in that same paper, the amount of hour, the amount that you're going to get paid for if you work overtime. But it's like, it's stupid to give a paper that says that you're going to get paid, let's say if you're going to pay $12, you're going to get paid what, like eight, 18, 18 if you get overtime. And it's like, I'm not even getting half of like what a part-time job really is. So it's just like, a, it's like you're signing your life to the devil, but it's like, literally the devil really isn't helping you in any way at all. Okay. So, you know, it's like you're, you're, you think you go in there with the impression of, you know, maybe things will get better. Maybe things will get pick up. Maybe, you know, hours will pick up, but you end up like, I'll put my own example. Like I end up just, you know, uh, texting people like, Hey, do you need, do you need me to cover for your shift or something like that? You know, like mm-hmm. making ways into like your hours for your hours to accumulate. And most of the time people say no, because they're in the same boat, the same bracket. So then they ask you like, hey, but I'll take your ship. It's like I would much rather <laughs> stay with my ship. Right. So it's like it's an ongoing cycle, like with I guess everybody. And then also what I've noticed is that the majority of people working retail um, are like hardworking people with like house issues. Like you know, I'll talk about like the the younger people working retail. Like they got to go to school and then they have to work around their school schedules. That's just one of the many examples. But then you have like the older people also that like need to go to like the doctor or need to take have their kids taken care of, but they they can and they end up like calling out. And then when you call out so many times, it's like you're unreliable and you know, they don't give you any hours. So I don't know, it's it's just kind of like it's not fair, you know. How does that affect your ability to organize? Because it sounds like you have like a a really kind of a workforce that's pretty spread out. You know, not everyone is there at the same time. How do you how do you appeal to like the broadest number of workers when you're trying to get them on board with you? Um, 
I guess pretty much is just starting with that one person whom you've just clicked from the beginning at the job, you know, that one person that you kind of like vent when you're in, in um, like your break, like, oh, today just sucked and you just kind of like go on and on. And then you kind of just build from there. You know, there's a lot of people that, of course, are going into jobs and they don't want to risk it uh, because of X and Y reason or promotion or, you know, et cetera. But the majority of the people, if they were to know more in depth as to what a union does or like what is it to be organized, if they get more of uh, information as to like what is it that like these organizations do, like the Retail Action Project, I guess it'd be more of like an awareness and they will know their rights. And I feel like the majority of the issues that I've encountered with like organizing is just people being scared of like getting kicked out of their jobs and then having to start from square on. Mm-hmm. And it's like it's not it's kind of like unfair because they they have all their rights to organize, but they don't know. So it kind of it's it's kind of like a tr- tricky situation because, yeah, I would love to go into Madewell and organize the whole entire store. But it's just you have those certain people that are like, well, if I do this, what's going to happen? Or like the people that are like, well, I've heard people that have organized and then they just got kicked out. And it's like it just becomes like a rumble of he said, she said, which, you know, prior as to just, you know, well, this is what's going on. Like, this is what's going to happen. And if we do this, this this is the end result. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's pretty much just just starting out one by one, which is why organizing takes so long. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's, it's worth it at the end of the day. It's a very satisfying job to just kind of like get your coworkers and yourself, you know, kind of like a peace of mind in the sense that, you know, you organize it. You, you, you kind of pulled it through and now we have people with jobs and most of the people that work there, like, actually went there because they want to work there. It's not, and I know that people have necessities, but it's like, you know, people actually want to work in these jobs. Yeah. Do you think your job would be um, a good job if, if it had, you know, decent hours and you had a sense of stability there? I mean, would you stick with that store? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I do visual merchandising, which is kind of like working with, like, um, the in like the stores displays and like styling the mannequins and stuff and I find that pretty like cool like I've been doing that for a really long time uh if I were to have more hours obviously it'd be more enjoyable to go in and work like a full you know eight hour shift nine hour shift to just kind of go ahead and get like work done as to you know going in for one day to like dust the mannequin and then that's it, your shift is over. It's like, I pretty much didn't do anything. And then most of the times when you're there for four hours, you get pulled from like your side work to like help somebody's, um, like if somebody's going on break and you're there, they'll be like, they'll take you away from like your job to like cover somebody else's, uh, you know, break. And it just becomes so annoying. Like I can't even get my work done. So I feel like I'm just support, like just working cashier, the fitting rooms, the floor, you know, and you have to give customer service. So it's like, it yeah. just becomes a hassle. Yeah. Um, so have any of you actually actively tried to organize a store or unionize a store or um, like approach your boss for some kind of collective bargaining? I tried at my previous job at Utrecht Art Supplies. Um, I was there for two, <laughs> for two months and um, it was really like, that was a really stressful job, you know, 
you you're going in there not only to sell art supplies but you're there also giving your input as an artist and so you are drained from your own work to get compensated for the minimum amount of money that they can give you and then when i started they were giving um they paid bi-weekly so we were getting like 40 46 hours in a week and then the next week we'd get like uh maybe 15 hours and then when we got our paychecks it was like we just worked the 725 job and it was so unfair because it's like okay if they're giving us all these amount of hours and they're they're telling us obviously that they need us and you know it was like back to school we were there putting our inputs to all these like new freshmen um as to what they need and you know all the requirements and i feel like you were just investing so much i kind of got fed up and i um <laughs> there was this um other co-worker who actually told me about the retail action project and how to go about organizing and i was like working towards it and then i i kind of just couldn't go through it i was going through like financial problems so that's when i switched over to madewell but um they kept going with the with the campaign and they actually won so so is it a fully unionized shop now or um i think it's still in the works they just got certified yesterday so they won an election Great. Um, last week, which is really exciting. And Sansara yeah. was a huge part of connecting um, her, you know, her ex-co-workers together. Yeah. Right, right. So at least you, you have a lasting legacy there, even though you're no longer... Uh, I'm no longer there, but it's, okay. it's kind of, it, it feels good because, you know, we, we were co-workers who ended up having, like, ties outside of work. And as artists, we kind of just got united. And I told them, like, you know, you guys have my support, even if I'm not here you know, you guys can ask me uh, the little bit that I know you guys can ask me, you know, not that I'm no longer in the store. And it kind of it kind of went that route. And then I left and, you know, there were some that were still like texting me like, do I still want to do this? And I'm like, no, do it, <laughs> do it. <laughs> like just pull through. And um, it worked out. It worked out. And now we talk to Christina Warden. She is Senior Program Manager of Women Employed, which is a national advocacy group for um, women and labor issues. And she's going to talk about the gender issues in retail work and how unfair irregular schedules might exacerbate some of the gender divides in the workforce. Why do you feel that this is an issue that directly relates to gender issues in the workforce? I think the reason um, that these issues affect women predominantly is that many of the sectors where we see the kind of volatile, unstable, unpredictable scheduling that we're talking about in the brief are sectors that tend to be highly populated um, by women in not only retail, but healthcare, hospitality, Um, even a lot of banking or financial or business back office jobs have these issues. And as I said, they tend to be populated more frequently by women than by men. We're looking at retail now and this issue of just scheduling and just hours. Could you talk about how the scheduling issue on top of the low wages and everything else is really crucial when we're talking about women's economic advancement? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, because even now in the in the 2000s, we all know that women are still predominantly the caretakers in the family. 
um, whether that be young children or today just as often um, older parents or family members who need caretaking. Um, caretaking in the in the home, not only for family and children, um, but women are also impacted because they're not able, if they have unstable schedules, the best opportunity for their economic advancement is to go back to school and to get more education. But if you've got a schedule where you don't know day to day, week to week, what hours you'll be working or how many hours you'll be getting, whether you can afford tuition, um, you can't commit to going back to school, to improving your education so that you can move up the economic ladder. So it impacts women in a number of different ways. Can you talk about uh, how erratic and irregular hours intersect with issues like eligibility for benefits and other kinds of public supports um, that you know women especially may rely on, namely you know things that are special supports for say women with children or eligibility for Medicaid and other benefits like that. Yes, well, uh, unfortunately, I'm not expert enough to go into the detail of the requirements for each of those public benefits, um, but many of them are your eligibility is reliant upon you working a certain number of hours a week. Um, and if your schedule, and we've talked to workers, um, I know you've talked to the folks at RAP who did great on the ground work um, with retail workers in New York, that they can these workers can have weeks where they only get six hours of work. They can have weeks, a following week, where they get 30 hours of work or 40 hours of work. Um, so there's inconsistency week to week, but any one of those weeks, you may not accumulate enough hours at your job to be eligible for those public benefits. Um, and you know that creates an instability in itself, not to mention issues in applying for and receiving those benefits never knowing when exactly you're, you'll qualify or when you qualify just week to week based on your hours. And when, you know, when people do suffer from these sort of wild swings in income from, you know, week to week or month to month, um, how might it affect their long-term financial outlook? I'm thinking, you know, we have studies showing that women's net worth and their net wealth is um, generally much smaller, particularly for women of color um, who are, you know, disproportionately affected by some of these retail policies. Um, can you talk about how this might affect someone over the course of a lifetime or a career cycle? Oh, absolutely. In fact, we were just looking at numbers this morning and looking at the, the education angle, but um, the percentages have actually gone up and women who have a bachelor's degree are earning 88% more than women who don't have education. And we talked a little bit about um, women not being able to return to school and get that additional education if they have volatile schedules. But the income that you have over the course of the lifetime, clearly these jobs, you don't have pension plans for the most part. Um, but you're paying into Social Security and other public benefits programs. And when you have limited income, both based on the minimum wage, but also based on limited or erratic hours, you know, there's a limit to what you're able to pay into the system because it's coming as a percentage of your income. Um, so it affects women not only when they're in the workforce, but it will continue to affect them once they retire and leave the workforce. And we do believe that there actually needs to be a combination of solutions to this problem. 
And some of those will be through legislation or regulation that set a floor or a minimum standard um, for these jobs and the hours in these jobs. But because of some of the difficulties in enforcing those kinds of laws, there also has to be some voluntary employer action. Now, we do have employers that do a good job with this. Um, we focus on some in the brief. Probably the one mentioned most often is Costco, but there's Quick Trip and there's home health care, the home health care cooperative. Um, but some of these employers have been doing this for quite some time, and I can't say that they've um, set off a trend in the industry because they are the few and the far between. So I think it's fair to say there certainly is no strong movement or trend within the industry to move in this direction, which is unfortunate. Right. And at the same time, those companies aren't necessarily suffering, even though they have in place these more fair policies towards their workforces. Uh, yes, exactly. And we, you know, we include in the brief the comparison of Walmart to Costco just in terms of their, their share price and their profitability. Um, so there are benefits at a business level. Mm -hmm. um, but I can't say that many employers have found the business case compelling on this issue, unfortunately. Right. Retail, as you know, uh, you know, notorious for not only having low wages and poor working conditions, but also having very little union representation often. So what is the role of organized labor in terms of advocating for um, some of these better employment practices, um, you know, we, we see some retailers such as Bloomingdale's in New York that has coverage from um, the retail workers union and, um, and there's like a stark difference there between that and say a Walmart, right? But do you think that there's also something maybe within the structure of retail itself that kind of inhibits labor organizing? Um, kind of a chicken in the egg phenomenon, I suppose. Yes. Well, I, I think actually some of the the chicken and egg issue that you're talking about revolves around the scheduling. Um, we have one worker in the brief who comments that when he's not able to make a shift, he's allowed to um, swap shifts with his coworkers, but turnover is so great at the, at the company or at the retail outlet that he doesn't know how to reach some of his coworkers. They're never there long enough for him to know them well enough. Um, to have their numbers and know how to reach them. And I think the same would affect labor organizing. If you've got a very high turnover rate, as you do in most retail establishments, it's hard to unionize, and I'm sure you heard some of this from the folks at the Retail Action Project, hard to use, organize workers who may leave the, the retail establishment within a matter of weeks or a couple of short months. Um, so there are some issues there, but we also do see some really good folks on the ground like RAP, um, and they're negotiating collective bargaining agreements in this area that are bringing good benefits to their members and to the retail employees. Um, one of the things that I think would also be, um, has also been beneficial in this area is that, or actually one of the things that I think could be beneficial in this area, um, we talk a little bit in the brief about some of the technology tools that retailers use, um, particularly scheduling software, which at its worst allows employers to 
you know, schedule with such a high level of efficiency that it can schedule in 15 minute increments based on customer traffic, weather, you name it. Um, but one of the things I would say is employers and retailers could just as easily use that same technology, um, should we say for good as opposed to evil. <laughs> um, there's research showing that most retailers, they talk about the number of hours that they have available to give employees as being very erratic, but we've seen research that says in fact about 80% of the hours that retailers have to offer their employees are stable across the course of a year. Um, so they could just as easily use the scheduling technology to do a much better job of scheduling their employees and giving them predictable, more stable schedules. Mm -hmm. But of course, they benefit from having workers be as contingent as possible um, in some ways, right? I mean, that, that prevents... Um, that prevents workers perhaps from, say, demanding a living wage or something like that. So. Um, well, I, I think they perceive it as a benefit, um, but I think there are also downsides in terms of the cost to them of turnover, the cost to them of retraining their, their new employees. Um, and one of the things that, that we've struggled with and we've had a very hard time quantifying is that the cost, employers can very easily see the cost of paying the employees for the small increments, the 15 incre 15 minute increments of time. Um, we've had a very hard time getting them to see the cost of turnover. And the reason that is, is that that gets buried in the human resources budget of an organization. Um, so we're still trying to get at sort of how you break that out and how you help employers see what the cost, clearly they see the benefit, but see that there's a cost and that cost may actually be higher than the benefit that they're reaping. In looking at the retail sector, I saw a lot of parallels with other low-wage sectors that have become sort of seedbeds of this new wave of labor organizing, such as fast food and restaurant service workers. Not only are these also, you know, disproportionately positions that are filled by women, but um, it, it seems that in a lot of service jobs, the work is not taken seriously in the sense that it is seen as just a craft job that you need to get by and that, you know, high turnover is expected and that no one really expects to say, um, you know, work at a fast food joint for years and years, even though we know many do. So what do you think is wrong with the public perception of some of these service jobs, such as retail? And how would you make the case that we should take the time to try to make these really good, sustainable jobs if there is this stereotype that they're just sort of jobs that people take to scrape by or maybe they're meant to be part-time jobs? Yes, that is one of the things that we hope to be working on and have been working on here at Women Employed is really raising public awareness about these jobs because I agree with you, I think a lot of people still see this as the job for high school students after school or over the summer or the job for college students or you know the, the old-fashioned part-time job for pin money. And that's just not the case anymore. These jobs are actually careers for a lot of people now. 
Um, and we believe, you know, very strongly that if someone is working and working full time or attempting to work full time in these jobs, um, if the hours are available, that those jobs also need to provide some dignity for those workers. Um, you know, let's face it, we we all rely on them. We all stop for our coffee or our muffin or our sandwich on the way into work in the morning um, or run to the grocery store at home on our way home at night. Um, and these are the folks who are behind the cash register, stocking the shelves, you know, providing things that all help us move through our days more seamlessly. And um, so, as I said, what we want to do is to restore some of the dignity to those jobs, but we understand that there also is a huge public education education perception that needs to change and that's something we'll be working on and making people I think a lot of people quite honestly either don't understand some of the things that are going on in scheduling um, we quite often when we're out in the community talking to women business and civic leaders um, particularly here in Chicago where we're based they're surprised to find that people can show up for work and be sent home that people can be scheduled in two-hour increments that vary in terms of the day and night during the course of a week. Um, so one, just making them aware of what these workers are encountering and dealing with in terms of scheduling, but then also building some will for making the changes and, as I said, setting a floor or a minimum standard for what should be the case in terms of scheduling in these kinds of jobs because, yes, they um, as you said, they predominantly affect women, but they also predominantly affect women and men of color. And that was Christina Warden of Women Employed. And before that, we heard from activists with the Retail Action Project. So what I thought was pretty interesting about um, all of these um, interviews and the voices of the workers especially was just um, how incredibly destabilizing to the rest of their lives um, these erratic schedules can be. Um, you know, they people have no way to essentially plan for anything beyond like the next week even. Yeah, yeah I mean, if the next week. I yeah. mean, I remember when I was working in restaurants and I, you know, I would go in and it, if it was quiet, they would send you home. And of course that, you know, quite often people didn't, couldn't leave until they made enough money to get our car out of a parking garage at one particular place that I worked in downtown Denver. Um, and it also reminded me the the conversation about um, scheduling software and the way the software is used to schedule these people. Um, when I talked to Janet Sparks, who is one of the, the Walmart strikers, she had worked at Walmart for quite a few years. And when they brought in this kind of software-induced scheduling that really, really just I mean, de- it, it, yeah, it just really dehumanizes them, right? That was really the thing that tur- turned her from like Walmart's, you know, star employee that they they flew her down to the um, oh, the, the, shareholder. the shareholder meeting, yeah, right, yeah. one year, and then like the in like two years later, she was there as as a protester, and it was really this kind of scheduling, and it was also, you know, she saw them doing this to you know women who had kids who they used to sort of work with, and now all of a sudden it was just entirely down to the whims of a computer, which would just say you come in here and you go home then, and blah blah blah, and you don't get hours this week, and you get. No hours that week. Yeah. Just treating people as interchangeable widgets, essentially. And yeah, and, yeah. And it's, of course, the gender issue is is so important because, I mean, 
in a bunch of research I've done over the last year for several different pieces, um, I really found that the part-time job itself was designed for women, right? So Bethany Morton makes this point in her book about Walmart. Um, Erin Hatton makes this book point in the book The Temp Economy, where she talks about the way temp jobs were designed around um, what she said in the interview there, the, the the pin money job for people who don't really need a real job. Right. Or the Kelly girl. Who yeah, exactly. This bearing the pencil between her teeth and that carefree God, smile. that ad is so horrifying. But right, but this idea that like women aren't real workers and therefore don't need real jobs and also don't have other responsibilities, a life or any right to claim their own time in a full-time manner where sort of men's jobs were scheduled regularly they were you know once once the labor movement fought for it the eight hour day um overtime right that you had you went in at nine you left at five that this was a reliable thing because you were a real worker and these were your rights as a real worker and that anybody else was not really doing real work and i we really see the echo of that in this whole idea that like these are just jobs for teenagers these aren't the bottom line is always this idea that they're not real jobs and these aren't real workers, right. and so they can be treated differently. Or that it's not a job that you would have for, you know, many years of your life, right? right. You know, oh, you, you know, you're a waitress this summer, and then, oh, you'll move on to something else next right. year. You know, right. oh, as you said, you know, people would ask you when you were working in restaurants, what do you what really, do, you really do, do, right? Right, and that's, I'm, you know, it's the same thing when I worked in retail. Um, I worked in retail long enough ago that I did not have any computerized scheduling going on, um, but... Yeah, the same kind of expectation that this isn't your real job, this isn't what you really do, but somehow that if it's not your real job and it's not what you really do, they never wonder how you manage to have time for what you really do. Right. And of course, a lot of these people who work in retail jobs, especially in the city where retail is just like what people do to get by to pay for school, right? I mean, to pay for your kids. Imagine having an on-call schedule for a -a 20-hour-a-week job that often ends up being less than 20 hours a week, and you're trying to take a full load of classes, you know? Yeah. Or you're trying to pick your kid up from school or be there when your kid gets home from school. Right. Right? I mean, this is a... Or you're trying to hold down another job because your job, you know, I mean, remember the McDonald's scheduling thing where there was all the drama because McDonald's um, basically put up a budget on its website that said that basically implied that all McDonald's workers would have a second job. And yet these same companies that basically assume you have to have a second job in order to pay the rent also refuse to give you any sort of schedule around which you could have another job. Right. So imagine trying to hold down two retail jobs that put you on the schedule by computer different hours every week. And then they tell you that if you aren't available for those hours, you are last on the rung to get hours. Right. And so... And yeah. I, I remember interviewing a McDonald's worker who basically worked at two different McDonald's in the same city, back to back part time shifts, basically yeah. working around the clock, night shift one place, day shift at the other end of town. And I was yeah. like, there's no way that that makes sense. And the fact that this is probably the product of some computer algorithm right. <laughs> really frightens me. Yeah. Um, and Christine Warden actually made um, that very point. She said, you know, if there, you can actually use technology in a way that can right. guarantee people right. a baseline exactly. of hours, can track their pay over the course of a week or a month and make sure that they're getting a stable income. I think this is so important, right? Is that like the question is never technology. 
is doing this to workers. Technology is still programmed by humans. This is being done because the technology is being used in a way that is maximally destabilizing to the workers because destabilized workers are, as she says in the interview, harder to organize, Mm -hmm. right? Destabilized workers are more dependent on this job and less you know, less able to say, hey, this isn't okay. Right. And actually, when I interviewed one of the um, rap activists, she yeah. said that, you know, at her job, there, were, there weren't enough shifts to go around. And essentially, right. she was jockeying with the, her coworkers, like trading shifts, like texting people like crazy, trying to see if they were free or that they could take her shift or she could take theirs. But everybody needed their shift. How do you organize in that kind of environment? You know, how right. do you build any kind of solidarity when you're like, you know, clamoring for that one afternoon shift that everyone wants to work, you know, so... Um, it's it, and of course you know you can kind of you can see the employer in the backdrop sort of you know rubbing rubbing his or her hands and yeah, just thinking like yeah. you know ah this is perfect we're you know it's like fostering this doggy dog mentality in a workplace right. so. yeah but so of course rap is doing this organizing with these workers despite all of the barriers to doing so um, but I'm wondering if they're doing any sort of demanding of like a stable baseline. Like, okay, if you're going to hire somebody, you have to give them at least X amount of hours. You have to give them X amount of notification for this. And if you don't need them for those hours, then you have to pay them for at least that many hours. Yeah. um, You know, there are actually laws, you know, on the book, uh, there are reporting time policies and there are, you know, set hours policies that basically either mandate that you're paid for the hours that you um, are scheduled to work right. but can't work. I think yeah. some restaurants actually institute this. Do you ever get paid for like a four-hour shift or some? I there's some okay. <laughs> yeah. restaurants are also one of the highest, uh, most likely places for you to experience wage theft. Yeah, also I, retail outlets. Right, right. So yeah, um, laws on the books and laws being enforced, of course, are also two very different things. Yeah, it's it's it really does depend a lot on the employer. But um, I know that you know at some workplaces like at Bloomingdale's um, flagship store in New York, they actually have written into the union contract, which also covers the union contract. Right. And so the retail workers union actually managed to actually break in. But of course, those unionized retail workplaces are getting fewer and fewer far between. And, you know, that is the challenge. On the other hand, they're also um, working on legislation that would compel this. So at the very least, you either have a set amount of hours that you work or you have a set amount of pay, even if you can't ultimately work those hours through no fault of your own. Those two things would bring some modicum of stability, which is essentially all these workers are asking for, right? And we live in such a time-obsessed culture. There's like the slow food movement and like take back your day and all these other sort of slogans that middle-class people are bandying about as if like time is like precious. Take back commodity. your day. Can we steal that one for the labor movement? Yeah, let's let's reappropriate the day, shall let's we? Take back the day. Yeah, expropriate right. the day. Okay. So, right. The fact is, everybody deserves time, right? Um, yes. And that's never uh, when time is money, you know, and you have less money time is becomes sadly a luxury that we are priced out of so and now for our final segment arg i wish i'd written that and we um here we talk about the uh the pieces that we wish we had written this week but ultimately did not the piece that made me go arg basically right from reading the title um because the title is an obvious nod to Barbara Ehrenreich. The piece is called Pixel and Dimed on not getting by in the gig economy. Um, it is at Fast Company, which is not 
exactly where I expect to find great labor coverage, but this is an excellent piece by Sarah Kessler, who um, became, as she says, a the micro-entrepreneur touted by companies like TaskRabbit, Postmates, and Airbnb. Um, she attempted to live on money that she made from the so-called sharing economy, which in this piece looks a whole lot less like sharing and a lot more like digital piecework, especially when you take into account, as she does very well, the amount of startup capital many of these fancy new tech companies have. Um, the conceit that these companies sell you is that it's freeing to not have a job, that scrounging whatever work you can through a variety of apps like Fiverr with two R's, um, TaskRabbit, and Zirtual. What is with the like R's and Z's with tech companies? Anyway, um, and Zirtual actually includes the question, do you feel that work and play shouldn't be mutually exclusive? Um, the whole idea is that these are fun jobs that are available to anyone, anywhere, um, who anybody who wants to work can find this job. This sort of seems designed to feed into the larger ideology that anybody who is not working, once again, is simply lazy, loafing, waiting for a handout. Um, Except Kessler has little to no luck getting by in the gig economy. Several companies reject her from the start. Others require her to have things that she does not have to monetize, like a fancy apartment for Airbnb or a car for any number of car sharing services. Other companies, when she puts in a bid for how much she'll take in order to, say, wrap gifts or test a website, choose somebody who bids less. These companies specialize in the sort of race to the bottom here um, in a way that well, they, there is no They're floor. putting themselves in an auction block. Right, you're putting yourself on a, on a negative auction right. block, and there is no floor because, oops, minimum wage doesn't seem to apply. Um, one company, she actually says, posts an ad for TaskRabbits that would pay them less than minimum wage. And she notes that the company apparently pulled the ad and reposted it later um, after they were called on the fact that this would be about $5 an hour. Another courier company that would send her zipping around Manhattan on her own bike um, makes sure that she knows you are not an employee of Postmates, so when it comes to safety, you're on your own. She points out that each company likes to promote its big stars who make a ton of money, but she says the reason these people make good headlines is precisely because they're outliers. Um, and another thing she does quite well in this piece is explores sort of the, the strange emotional labor that is outsourced onto TaskRabbit's like reading email from a contentious ex to summarize the contents for someone going through a divorce or keeping the task poster company while she opens her mail or, you know, quote unquote tutoring, which actually just seems to be sitting by a contentious 13 year old while she does her homework. She points out that many of these TaskRabbit employers immediately want to go off of TaskRabbit, pay cash, ignore the rules, and that these gig economy platforms may ultimately be an app-powered temporary employment agency rather than a revolutionary new form of work. That's not new, revolutionary, or even very technologically advanced. It's the same old way of looking at cheap labor that we are seeing everywhere. With a fancy name. A with a fancy name. name with lots of Zs and extra Rs. Yeah. It, yeah. They sound like they were... They were focus groups with a bunch of five-year-olds or something. Yes. <laughs> yes. Five-year-olds who had a lot of candy. Yes. Um, so, uh, well, uh, my piece actually looks back at history at, at another era of, um, you know, being poor and scraping by. It is actually by uh, Mike Consul, and it is called The Conservative Myth 
of a social safety net built on charity. And it kind of, um, it, it's, you know, it's it's not, um, you know, a heavily ideological piece. He largely looks at um, Harry Truman's um, agenda and his strategy for approaching poverty. But he does a pretty good job of deconstructing the history of this idea of so-called compassionate conservatism, or rather sort of voluntary, um, you know, philanthropic do-gooderism. It's been called many different things in different eras of U.S. history, um, primarily over the course of the 20th century. Um, But he sort of debunks this myth that, you know, long ago everyone was self-sufficient and when you didn't have enough, your neighbor helped you out. And that's the way it was back then. Everybody cared about each other. They didn't rely on welfare, kind of like Archie Bunker says. They didn't need the government to intervene. Everybody just took care of their own and they looked after each other and it was great. Um, But Mike Konzel actually looks back at some of the uglier aspects of that tradition of charity-based social care for the poor and looks back at sort of, you know, everything from old almshouses to um, uh, different uh, fraternal societies that uh, immigrant and ethnic communities started when uh, they migrated to the United States, Um, all sorts of different configurations of charities, social work agencies, etc. And he looks at how um, kind of the language of social welfare and the concept of charity has morphed, um, going from something that was um, supposed to just help people scrape by to something that was designed to sort of complement the role of the state, um, to something that increasingly is wielded by conservatives to attack the welfare state, to attack things like Social Security or Medicaid or Medicare. This idea that, oh, the free market always works, and this sort of last resort safety net should be run completely by private entities and based on goodwill, because otherwise, we become dehumanized and less caring people. In reality, all of us become a dehumanized and less caring society when we start to gut state programs like Social Security or Medicaid and Medicare. And the shrinkage that we've seen of a lot of these programs, which was most recently crystallized in Paul Ryan's budget agenda, really um, goes to show you how flawed this concept of charity is. And Consul actually does a pretty good job of outlining um, the key weaknesses of voluntarism as a social welfare strategy, namely um, charity tends towards a kind of elitism, cronyism, where you tend to sort of fund only the causes that you care about or the causes that will somehow reflect well on you, such as giving back to your alma mater as a nonprofit donation as opposed to something that will actually help poor people. Um, And also um, things like um, the fact that during an economic downturn, um, big philanthropy tends to become less giving, right? It's not a counter-cyclical program that automatically expands to catch people. Um, yeah, especially after this particular financial crisis. Remember uh, what happened to a bunch of specifically Jewish charities, after Bernie Madoff, made off with their money. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, you know, that's the other thing, too. Sometimes you just get outright screwed in the world of charity, right? Well, so. in the world of finance. Right, right. Um, and so, again, you know, this is the um, the very perilous um, ground that you're on when you conflate, you know, private, um, private economic activity with sort of public uh, philanthropic paternalism. Um, and this idea of this noblesse oblige, this paternalism has always been with us, 
but right now it's at the fact that it's being used to undermine some of the state interventions that developed because those charity networks were never enough. Most of our welfare state right now was a product of the New Deal and this period when no one had anything, not even the charities, right? Um, so, you know, while that came out of a crisis moment, now we're seeing uh, this concerted effort on the part of conservatives to roll that back. Um, but the idea behind sort of public social insurance, you might quibble with the idea of, you know, the, the name social safety net or social insurance, um, but the idea of having some kind of social welfare state there to safeguard um, what is most precious to us, like life and health, um, those are all things that are so essential that they tend to become part of the state, part of the state apparatus as society expands. And that's kind of a trend in history that you can't really turn back, even though conservatives like to fictionalize this sort of um, moral ideal when everybody gave to each other and everybody was all hunky-dory. Well, (laughs) we're not hunky-dory. We're not hunky-dory. But we always love to hear from you, whether you are hunky-dory or whether your boss is trying to um, take away your birth control or anything else. I'm guessing the latter is <laughs> state of mind yes. right now. If you have a story that you want to share with us, you can email us at belabored at dissentmagazine.org. You can tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Send us your stories, questions, thoughts, anger at your boss's religious beliefs, anything else you feel like sharing. We'll be back next week. This life is hard, so hard I must go. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's Belabored Podcast, produced by Natasha Lewis. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Until next week, join us online using hashtag belabored.